Today we're talking about government subsidies for factory farms. Is this true? You know, amid endless talk about cutting the fat out of the budget, the federal government Monday announced it will buy $40 million of unwanted chicken products that will be dumped on our nation's school kids and others in federal food programs. Why? Because chicken meat factories have increased production while actual demand for chicken is flat, causing an imbalance in their spreadsheets. All of this raises several important questions. Is U.S. now bailing out the meat industry? If so, does this mean that tax dollars are now paying for the cruelty of factory farms? Does the flat demand for chicken meat suggest a trend away from meat and a heightened awareness of vegetarian vegan alternatives? Here to talk about this is Paul Shapiro, who's the Senior Director for Farm Animal Protection with the Humane Society of the United States. Paul Shapiro's played an integral role in numerous successful legislative and corporate campaigns to improve the plight of farm animals. Uh, His work has helped enact animal protection laws in California, Arizona, Michigan, Maine, Colorado, and Oregon. He's worked with dozens of companies, including some of the world's top retailers, to improve animal welfare in their supply chains. He founded Compassion Over Killing in 1995 and served as its campaigns director until uh, January 2005, and his bio goes on and on and on, but uh, how about we wish him good morning. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, Jared. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Thanks for uh, for being here. It's uh, quite an impressive uh, quite an impressive list of accomplishments. Uh, why don't we begin um, this morning by just tell us a bit about uh, the current government subsidy to the poultry industry. Exactly how much was it why was there a need for it? What exactly is going on here? Sure. Well, I mean, basically, the USDA just bought up $40 million worth of unwanted chicken problem, uh, products in order to basically help the, its friends in the chicken industry out. I mean, in short, as demand for chicken meat remains far below the number of birds who are actually being raised and killed by the chicken industry, Rather than allowing the market to adjust to basic supply and demand principles, the federal government announced that it's going to buy $40 million of these unwanted chicken products that will then be dumped onto our nation's school kids and others in federal food programs. So, in short, as you said, Jared, the chicken companies are raising and killing more animals than there is currently demand for. Demand for chicken has remained flat or has fallen. And instead of them coming into basic supply and demand principles, you know, if there's not enough demand, the supply will diminish, the USDA is stepping in to try to help out its friends in the chicken industry by giving them this $40 million bailout. And it's not the first bailout of its kind. I mean, the Wall Street Journal said that uh, when you combine this extra bailout plus the bailout that it got in extra government purchases last year, um, the USDA bought $86 million more of chicken than the roughly $100 million that the agency buys in scheduled chicken purchases for a year. So it's $100 million that they're buying for the school lunch program and other federal food programs a year, plus here's another $86 million just handed out to the industry with no strings attached. Now, I think it's important, just so we're we're clear, I mean, in the grand scheme of the federal budget, these are small numbers. So, so that being said, 
uh, 40 million is still 40 million. And, uh, you know, when, when we take a look at the kinds of things, particularly in that last, you know, that last whole budget debate, I mean, people were arguing over things, I think, that were, were even less than a 40 billion or, uh, I'm sorry, a 40 million. Uh, I mean, it, it isn't the amount of money per se that's the issue. It's that, you know, Every other sector, we say, well, that's the market. If we've got an unemployment rate that is 15%, well, that's the market. If, uh, you know, the, the Wall Street goes up and down, that's the market. And yet here, it, it's just amazing to see the, the government rushing in to, to bail out the, the poultry industry. Yeah, I think you're right, Jared. And, and, you know, look, as you note, $40 million compared to the total federal budget, of course, is very little. However, this is just one of the latest examples of federal assistance that's going to industries that really shouldn't be getting it. I mean, a study that Tufts did thought, found that the broiler chicken industry, that's the chicken meat industry as opposed to the egg industry, that the chicken meat industry alone saved one25 billion, with a B, $1.25 billion in feed costs in less than a decade just from taxpayer-funded subsidies. So this direct buy-up of all this unwanted chicken is certainly problematic, but even more problematic are the billions upon billions of dollars that taxpayers give to the federal government, and then it goes and, tr- goes and, and turns around and gives it to the agribusiness industries, trying to artificially lower the cost of meat, eggs, and dairy, not just with direct assistance to them, but more often with indirect assistance by uh, subsidizing the cost of corn and soy. And the overwhelming majority of corn and soy that we use in this country and that we grow in this country doesn't go to vegetarians who are eating, you know, uh, tofu and corn on the cob. It's going to uh, factory farms that are raising animals for food, and they require huge inputs of corn and soy to feed these farm animals, and feeding them is the number one cost of raising animals for food. So you've got a situation where taxpayer monies are going to basically make it cheaper to sell meat, eggs, and dairy so that you know, and, and you look at the course of human history, most poorer countries and poorer people have subsisted on largely plant-based diets, rice and vegetables in Asia, rice and beans in Latin America. Even if they weren't vegetarians, they were subsisting largely on a more plant-based diet. Now we have a circumstance where oftentimes animal products may even be cheaper than certain fruits or vegetables or nuts or seeds or grains because of these gross subsidies that we're handing out to the animal agribusiness industries. And unlike with the bailout of the automakers last year or, or um, in recent last one or two years, you know, these are no-strings-attached bailouts. When we gave General Motors billions of dollars, not only was the company required to pay it back, but it was also required to have all types of improvements in auto fuel efficiency and other management issues. Here, we're just giving billions of dollars away to industries that shouldn't be getting it. There's no expectation or there's no request that it ever be paid back, and there's no strings attached. They don't even have to improve environmental or animal welfare um, uh, practices or, or anything. They just get it and go do whatever they want. Well, let's talk about that, but I want to remind listeners if they're just tuning in, uh, this is KUCI's Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Paul Shapiro, 
taking a look at government subsidies to, uh, well, in this case, the poultry industry. And we keep referring to it as either agribusiness or as an industry. And I want to make sure um, that listeners understand precisely why we're using the word industry. I'm sure people who who listen to this program regularly uh, have some sense because we've done a lot on uh, animal rights and veganism and uh, all the, uh, I think it was Prop 2. Uh, was it Prop 2 or Prop 5? Uh, in California, it was Prop 2. It was Prop 2. And, uh, and uh, you, were in, you were involved in that, correct? Uh, you could say that. You were, yeah. you were like the spearhead of it. Uh, I was a, I was a cog in a machine, but it was definitely my life. For, there you for go. A long time yes, was that campaign. Yes, and okay. So let's make sure that uh, that listeners, uh, you know, and forgive me for forgetting which number it is, but they throw so many <laughs> at us in the state of California. Let's make sure that listeners understand why we're referring to this uh, as an industry. And I think once they get a sense of that, then the the uh, the implications of not having strings attached to this. Uh, this bailout is um, really becomes uh, an issue. Yeah, sure. I mean, right now you've got oftentimes when the federal government will give money, it will have all types of expectations, whether it's to uh, giving money to states for their educational programs. They're saying, okay, well, you only get federal assistance if you get your test scores up, for example, or the automakers will only get federal money to bail them out if they increase their fuel efficiency standards. There's all types of ways that the federal government uses uh, financial assistance to get different types of outcomes that it wants. Um, in this case, though, the agribusiness lobby is so influential, is so powerful, that essentially it can extract billions upon billions of dollars in federal subsidies every single year with no expectation that it ever be paid back, with no expectation that it changes anything about what it's doing at all. I mean, the best option would be not to give out this money in the first place, both because these industries shouldn't be getting it and because we have a huge federal deficit problem anyway. However, if the money is going to be given out at the barest of minimums, the federal government ought to say, okay, if you're going to get this, then you have to improve animal welfare practices, and here are several ways in which you have to do it. You have to improve uh, manure management, I mean, so that you could have less risk of damage to the environment. I mean, there's all types of things that could be required um, that would accomplish important goals, including environmental and animal welfare improvements. What are the conditions like um, in these uh, these chicken farms? Or, or, I mean, when we call it an industry, we think of, you know, an assembly line or parts mm. rather than, than the whole product. And that's why I really think the word industry is important. So for people who are unfamiliar with um, how that piece of chicken from uh, KFC gets... Uh, from, you know, how it's made. Can you just give listeners a little bit of uh, what is life like on a chicken farm? Sure. You know, it used to be the case, let's say 60 years ago, that raising a chicken would take more than 80 days before they would reach slaughter weight. Now we've bred these birds to grow so bulky, so fast, that we slaughter them generally at around only 42 days. So it's about half the time to get them to grow to the same weight. And the way that we did that was by basically genetically selecting birds over the course of decades to grow faster and faster and faster. And there's a lot of animal welfare 
costs associated with such extraordinarily rapid growth. Many of these birds, by the end of their very short, abbreviated lives, are unable to take more than a few pitiful steps without feeling pain because they've grown so fast that their skeleton is not really designed to hold that much weight on top of it. So they suffer from leg problems. They suffer from lung problems. They often will have heart attacks. And keep in mind, these birds are are still what would be for the avian equivalent of even before puberty, and they're having heart attacks uh, from growing so fast. And we've done the same thing to turkeys as well. I mean, we've bred turkeys to grow so fast, to have so much breast meat, because Americans want to eat more of the breast meat, that these birds are unable even to naturally mate anymore. I mean, the tom's chest is just too heavy to mount the hen. And so all of the turkeys who we are raising on factory farms in the United States are the product of artificial insemination. So we, I mean, we quite literally play God with these animals by breeding them to exaggerate characteristics that will be more profitable for those who are uh, raising the animals. And it's not just the rapid growth that's a problem. I mean, if anybody's walked into a uh, facility that raises chickens, what they're likely to find is an enclosed barn with tens of thousands of birds who don't go outside They live there with very little to do except sit down and eat for uh, about 42 days, after which they are um, grabbed by workers and thrown into crates, at which point they're trucked to slaughter. And at the slaughter plant, they are subjected to practices that are, are really so horrific that few people would even be able to bear witness to what happens to them. I mean, these birds are dumped onto conveyor belts. They're shackled upside down. Um, while they're fully conscious, they're then dragged through a vat of electrified water that's intended to immobilize them, and then their necks are run over a rotating blade that cuts their throats. Some of the birds don't even hit the blade, and they then die by drowning because the next phase of the process is dunking them into a tank of scalding hot water that's designed to loosen their feathers. So it's a really barbaric process um, from from beginning to end of factory farming, and too often these animals are not viewed as individuals with personalities, with likes and dislikes, with even with just the bare capacity to suffer. Too often they're treated like they're just units on a production line who are, you know, exist solely for the purpose of producing a profit for some agribusiness company. And we, I mean, that was very succinct. Um, Thank you. Um, And of course, uh, listeners can sometimes be lured into the the marketing uh, language of uh, cage-free or... um, you know, free range. And I think it's important, mm-hmm. you know, that simply means they're not in that tiny little crate, but it doesn't mean that they've got enough space to, you know, when you hear free range or cage free, you think of, you know, open meadows and, and babbling brooks and so forth, but they're still warehoused in this, this general feeding area. Is that accurate? <laughs> Yeah, so first off, all chickens who are raised for meat are already cage-free. So it's kind of funny because you'll see on some chicken meat packages the claim cage-free, but, I mean, nobody in the chicken meat industry cages birds. In the egg industry, they do, which is why you'll see cage-free on cartons of eggs sometimes. But it's always kind of amusing to me to see on a package of chicken meat the term cage-free because it doesn't differentiate them from any other chicken meat company. Free-range basically means 
Indians that the animals not only were cage-free, but they had access to the outdoors. But, of course, there's no definition for what access to the outdoors means. So, you know, you could have some free-range chicken operations where the birds really are outdoors, or you could have others where most of them never go outside at all, but a door at the end of a barn is opened up for five minutes a day, and, you know, they have access to a tiny concrete pad outside. Um, and there's everything in between that. So just the term free range doesn't necessarily mean that the birds really were outside. Um, as far as eggs are concerned, cage-free has a little bit more meaning because at least the birds aren't in cages, whereas most egg-laying hens are locked up in cages. And being cage-free is certainly no assurance that the birds are living on Old McDonald's farm by any means. But it is at least better than being locked up in a cage where they can't even spread their wings for their whole lives. I always found it troubling as a child that it was old McDonald's farm because at the same time we were singing that song in grade school, we were going to McDonald's with our families. And after a while, it was like, wait a second, what's the connection here? But uh, That's funny. I want to remind <laughs> listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Paul Shapiro from the Humane Society, talking about government subsidies for uh chicken meat. Now, we talked about the uh, certainly the horrors of the uh, chicken meat. And, uh, and of course, we added uh, the, the egg industry. And earlier, we discussed that uh, consumption of poultry is flat while production of poultry is increasing. So uh, I think an obvious question is, do we know why consumption of chicken uh, has been flat. Is it simply the result of, of the economy where people are maybe eating out less or eating less meat? Or is there a heightened awareness um, with movies like documentaries like Food Incorporated or Knives Over Forks? Uh, or is it Forks Over Knives, rather? <laughs> or, um, I think that might be the sequel. Maybe. Yeah, there you go. Or... or um, uh, you know, or or any of the kind, you know, maybe the uh, the farm to fridge uh, uh, movie that uh, Mercy for Animals has put out. Do we know what's going on here with the consumption of meat? There are a lot of factors, but it's not just the economy. I mean, really, meat has been one of the worst performers in food sales from 2005 to 2010. Um, whereas you see other foods really increasing in popularity, and I'm talking really globally here, both in the U.S. and globally. And um, there are a variety of reasons, but the one study that was put out by a group called Euromonitor Euromonitor International finds that one of the biggest causes is not that more people are necessarily becoming vegetarians or vegans, but that more people are becoming what they call flexitarians, these people who are kind of like semi-vegetarians. They're more flexible in their diet than the standard American diet, which is, um, you know, involving meat, eggs, or dairy basically at every single meal. Um, And so as more and more people are cutting back, we're seeing not so much an increase in the percentage of Americans who who are strict vegetarians, but we're seeing an increase in the number of people who are, doing things like meatless Mondays or trying to eat more plant-based meals on a regular basis. And that really is a huge motivating uh, factor. I mean, keep in mind, I mean, if everybody in America just participated in meatless Mondays, they were a vegetarian one day a week, that would mean 1.4 
billion fewer animals who are being raised and slaughtered every single year in the country. So without even netting one new vegetarian, you could, you know, reduce that dramatically by more than a billion animals, the number of them who are raised and killed for food. And so I think that's one of the the real compelling reasons. And then for for this um, for this drop in demand for meat products, not just chicken but other meat products as well. And the reason why people were doing it is for health reasons, for environmental reasons, and for animal welfare reasons. I mean, you see people like Bill Clinton now who are out there touting that he is basically eating a vegan diet. And, I mean, just this past weekend, CNN's Sanjay Gupta did an hour-long special on how a vegan diet can be used to help both prevent and reverse heart disease. Just last week, Al Gore came out and said that in order to combat climate change, people need to eat less meat. And it's about got... and it's about time he did. I mean, what, I <laughs> mean, what was he waiting for? I mean, it, you know, Inconvenient Truth was, was great, but for that, that glaring omission of, uh, you know, the contribution of agribusiness. It was pretty remarkable. When I was watching it, I, I remember the scene where he goes to his family's old cattle farm, and I thought maybe that would be the time when they bring it up, you know. But uh, I was pretty shocked that it didn't um, that it didn't raise the issue that uh, animal agribusiness is one of the greatest contributors to uh, to man to man made greenhouse gases. It's sure. a real shame that he didn't bring it up. But I'm very glad that he's doing it now. And it's not just people like Clinton and, and Gore who are who are touting the benefits of eating less meat. Now, you also see places, uh, major food service providers like uh, Sodexo and Aramark, which are huge food service providers, really promoting their vegetarian options. And cultural icons like Oprah Winfrey and Ellen DeGeneres both now have their own online vegan starter kits. I mean, I'm not kidding. If you go to Ellen's website or mm-hmm. Oprah's website, they both have entire online extensive vegan starter kits. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, there was a time when, I mean, I mean, there are still some major animal advocacy groups who don't have anything like that. And people that are, you know, some of the biggest cultural icons in America um, and really even the world are now promoting it. So this is all contributing to an atmosphere, I think, in which, uh, people are starting to reconsider what they're eating and for a whole variety of reasons are beginning to eat lower on the food chain. And I do think it's important that we stress that, you know, certainly uh, to uh, dust off uh, an old cliche, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And yeah. so the idea of a meatless Monday or even a vegan Monday in, in with, with one of my colleagues, uh, I'm working on a research project with a colleague and um, we get together every Tuesday uh, evening to, to work on this. And then afterward we go to dinner and uh, I took him, he's a, a nice meat and potatoes kind of athlete guy. And uh, I took him to, uh, I, I don't, can't remember where you're, you're uh, I'm speaking to you from, but um we have a, a, a restaurant out here called Native Foods, and there's a few uh, of them, love Native f- Foods. a few, few of them across the country. And uh, I took him there once, and now every single Tuesday, that's where he wants to go. Oh, that's and like I, his Tofu Tuesday. And I bumped into him at uh, the local vegan market once, and he showed me all the <laughs> different products that he was buying. He still eats everything else, but yeah, for him, 
it's you know it's it's baby steps. I mean, we all recognize that that automobiles uh, are not the best thing for the environment, but few of us are willing to just give up cars. You know, mm-hmm. I pardon the, the the pun, cold turkey, and um, <laughs> you know, and uh, and uh, just start walking or taking bikes everywhere. It's it's not practical, and so. What I often tell tell my students is, you know, activism or doing the right thing should never have to be this huge sacrifice. It's got to be fun, you know, otherwise you're going to burn out. And so rather than than just giving everything up, take something new on. So rather than feel like, okay, well, I've got to stop eating cheese or I've got to stop eating this or I've got to stop eating that, like my friend, once a week go to a place like Native Foods and it will quickly become uh, – it will quickly become one of your favorite restaurants or quickly take on, you know, the, the coconut milk. And you'll realize that that might actually be better than, than you know, dairy and, and so forth. You know, I hear you loud and clear, Jared. I'll tell you um, that I'm a firm believer that we should always just be striving for continual progress. No matter where on that spectrum we are, whether we're an inveterate meat eater, whether we're trying to reduce our meat consumption or a vegetarian or a vegan. I mean, I've been vegan for 18 years, and I still think that there are lots of ways that I can and should do better in my diet to to try to reduce the amount of harm that I cause. Because, I mean, not certainly not all vegan foods are, are cruelty-free necessarily. I mean, a lot of times... You know, I just was reading uh, this book about the really deplorable treatment of of uh, farm workers who are cultivating a huge portion of the nation's tomato crop, and how many of them are living in truly slave-like conditions. Sure. So I think it's it's easy for 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 us to say, oh, well, we're vegan, so you know, like we're you know, it's, you just presume that it's cruelty-free, but there may actually be always ways to improve. And I look at the same way with. Um, with uh, friends of mine who still eat animals, and I, I encourage them to just continually make progress. And for a lot of people, the idea of becoming a vegetarian or a vegan is just so foreign to them that they're just not prepared to make that. And I think we should welcome any progress that anybody makes. If they're going to do Meatless Mondays, I think that's fantastic. I mean, sure. I, I say I would pat them on the back and say, way to go. You know, very few people go from A to Z without going through 24 other letters <laughs> right. first. And, and it's also, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and, you know, maybe they'll never get to Z. Maybe none of us will ever get to Z, but we always should keep on trying, and, and we shouldn't expect that people will, will do all or nothing, because when you ask for all or nothing, too often you end up getting nothing. And, you know, it's certainly important to, to recognize that, um, uh, I believe they're called food deserts, you know, and there are food deserts in uh, many parts of the country where you really don't have access to the options that uh, people in certainly Orange County, California, or Los Angeles, mm-hmm. California, or New York City, or Chicago, you know, would have. And so, yeah. um, and, and that's a problem, and I, I do believe it's changing. But, um, you know, so that that's certainly a, an issue. And it, uh, But I also want to emphasize for people who are out there and who are um, thinking about this is that once you do it, it becomes so, so rote, so routine that, that mm-hmm. it isn't, uh, you know, I've been, been, I guess one of those flexa vegans for for many years, and then I finally did the full vegan uh, about two or three years ago, and have not looked back since. And um, and everything from from vegan shoes and and vegan um, body and skin products and so forth. And now it's like I wouldn't even think of um, 
I still miss cheese, but Deya cheese has now, you know, kind of made that go away. <laughs> that stuff's really amazing. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so for people out there who who are listening, yeah, you don't have to do it overnight, but you don't you don't also have to be overwhelmed by the fact that it's an impossible lifestyle. But there there are challenges, and so. Uh, and it's also incumbent upon us, I think, as you said, I mean, we focused on, I think you're talking about the Immokalee workers, the uh, tomato yeah. pickers in um, in Florida. They've gone after um, successfully Taco Bell and uh, I believe Burger King and others. And, and what's interesting now is that they're... they're campaign is focusing on Trader Joe's, which is where a lot of people get their, their soy based products. So it's, it's a <laughs> challenge. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a challenge on what, how to handle that. But, uh, you know, you know, I think I, I agree. It's a challenge and I agree with you that we shouldn't be overwhelmed. I mean, I think none of us are called upon to be perfect. None of us are capable of living a life that doesn't involve causing harm to others. I think what we are called upon to do is to do the best that we can to try to minimize the amount of suffering that we cause to others and to try to encourage others to do the same. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes fear that there might be like a, a litmus test saying, oh, if you're not at this level, you know, then you're not one of us. But, you know, anybody who's trying to help make the world a better place, anybody who's trying to help establish a relationship between humans and other animals that is one that's less based on violence and domination and one that's more based upon, you know, compassion and respect, I think, you know, is doing great. And I want to encourage them. And certainly as somebody who's been vegan for for some time, I, I find it easy, like, you know, like secondhand nature. I mean, it doesn't even cross my mind. Um, you just become accustomed to it in the way that people who eat meat are accustomed to eating meat. Um, but it's, uh, you know... I, for people who have come to me and told me that they want to be vegan or a vegetarian, I always recommend to them that they try leaning into it. You know, try, you know, don't feel a need to just overhaul, make like a radical overnight change, because too often that may not be uh, sustainable for a lot of people. And just try leaning into it. I mean, it's something that um, that you're going to have some time to get used to, and eventually you'll, you may never want to look back. Well, ultimately, this is a program about activism and about what people can do. So aside from the Tofu Tuesdays, I like that. That's really good, by the way. Um, the Tofu Tuesdays or the, the Meatless uh, Mondays and, and easing into veganism. Uh, for those people who, who say, okay, yeah, I'm doing the vegetarian diet or I'm doing the vegan diet, but my tax dollars are still going, even though that consumption of meat is is flat – tax dollars are still going to uh, the industry. What do you recommend that listeners do if they're upset, not only about the conditions of factory farming, but the fact that our money is still going there? Um, well, first of all, there's obviously Satan Saturdays, of course. Yeah, um, I haven't heard that but, one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, seriously, I mean, our federal dollars are used for all types of things that, that we don't have any control over and that many of us would object to. I mean, you know, not just on funding the animal agribusiness industry, but on funding uh, all types of unnecessary and unproductive animal experimentation. Some people may be concerned about it being used to fund, you know, nuclear, uh, nuclear programs for the military and so on. I mean, there's all types of things that, that one could find concern about with regard to how federal dollars are spent. 
but we don't have any control over that. I mean, with you know, with the exception of either becoming a, a what they call a war tax resistor, basically people who, like go to jail for not paying their taxes. Which and we focused on that extensively on this show. So. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I say, you know, I kind of, you know, I admire the purity of the people who do that, but I fear that they may not be actually accomplishing much behind behind bars. Um, And so, I mean, aside from that, um, I wouldn't focus on things that we don't have control over. We have to accept that we're not going to lead a life that involves causing, that involves no ethical, you know, uh, conflict within our own minds. But instead, we should focus on what we can do. And we can do things like going out and getting involved in animal advocacy campaigns to help people, for example, eat lower on the food chain. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, the more and more, the greater number of flexitarians in the country are actually really reducing uh, the number of animals who are being raised and killed for food. I mean, for so long. For decades and decades, the number of animals raised in killed for food kept on increasing every single year in the United States, both because of population increases and because of per capita consumption increases. And finally, we're starting to see that trend subside. And we even saw one year in the last couple of years where it went down as opposed to continuing to go up. So um, that is, I mean, it's actually really making a difference. And in addition to encouraging folks to do better when it comes to our own diets, I would encourage folks to get involved in campaigns that are seeking to prohibit the most egregious of the factory farming practices. Uh, Prop 2 in California was one great example where the animal movement accomplished something that I would argue is perhaps the most important statewide law that the animal movement has ever passed in, in its history in the United States. I mean, in California, the biggest agricultural state in the country, after being barraged by a multi-million dollar agribusiness campaign, the voters there still chose to ban veal crates, battery cages, and gestation crates, three of the most emblematic practices of factory farming, in an overwhelming vote that had ripple effects throughout the entire nation. So I am very optimistic about the state of affairs within the animal protection movement today, I think, especially on farm animal protection, that we are making more progress now than we ever have before, and it's certainly long overdue. And for many years, the animal movement was right about this factory farming debate, and now we're finding ourselves not just on the right side, but really on the winning side, and it's up to all of us who want to see a more humane society created accelerate that trend. And I think that what that campaign showed was that when people do find out where their food comes from, they are generally concerned and generally compassionate when when they realize that, that animals are sentient beings and, and when we no longer view them as just pieces of meat on, on a plate. And I think that that was what was so uh, powerful about the Prop 2 campaign. Finally, tell our listeners a bit about the Humane Society of the United States. What uh, is there a campaign you're currently working on? What would you like listeners to know about? Well, I'd say probably the most important thing that we're working on right now as far as farm animals are concerned, of course, I mean, I should note that most of what the Humane Society of the U.S. does is, is focused on dogs, cats, wildlife, and uh, and other issues, um, although we do have a very active farm animal protection division. And 
one of the most important things I'd say that we're working on right now is enacting federal legislation that would ban barren battery cages for egg-laying hens across the country. It would be similar legislation to this, that which has already been enacted in Europe. And, um, it, you know, we have, through a series of um, negotiations with the egg industry, I feel like we're at a greater chance of actually getting this enacted now than ever before. And so as soon as the Congress comes back in from recess, which will be shortly after Labor Day, um, I would expect a bill to be introduced that would ban and phase out barren battery cages for laying hens in all 50 states. And uh, there'll be an intense lobbying effort to really get behind it see what we can do. So that's the most important thing we're working on. Expect to hear about the introduction of that legislation in the near future. And uh, I'll, I'll look forward to having the movement galvanized behind this bill because I believe it's the most exciting thing to happen for farm animals, uh, um, certainly uh, as long as I can remember for, for, for at the federal level for sure. And where can listeners turn for more information about the Humane Society of the United States? Well, our website is just humanesociety.org, and if you want to get just specifically information about our farm animal protection programs uh, on Facebook, just check us out at the Humane Society of the United States-Farm Animal Protection Campaign, and uh, you can just like the page and you'll periodically get updates about what's going on in the world of farm animal protection. And are there, now, finally, and I thank you, I told you I would keep you about a half hour, and I think I'm just about on the mark, which is miraculous <laughs> for me. <laughs> but um, and the and as, are with you. aside from the tofu Tuesdays, the uh, <laughs> Satan Saturdays, and I'm sure we could come up with uh, tempeh Thursdays or whatever. The, the um, field rest Fridays. Do you are there letter campaigns about the subsidies or anything, or do you just really encourage listeners to start taking control at the the real local level by, as you said, things that they could control, which is their diet. Yeah, I think that um, it's far more impactful for folks to um, to try to improve their own diet and the diet of those of their friends and family. Um, at the same time, uh, there is going to be a big debate in in the next year over the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill is a bill that comes up every five years that really sets the nation's agricultural priorities for the five for the next five years. And in the current climate that we have, there is a big push to restrict all federal spending, including agricultural subsidies. And so I think when the debate for the Farm Bill comes up that you'll see a real push from many of the national animal protection groups to get their members writing letters to the Congress urging them to slash agribusiness subsidy programs. Well, to be continued, we'll have to uh, have you on again. Uh, well, we'll see where we are five years from now. But uh, <laughs> Well, no, the, the bill should be up within the next year. Oh, within so the next we'll, year, because it happens every yeah. five years. Thank you. Well, we'll That's definitely right. have to have you back if, uh, if you'd like to, because we'd certainly like to have you. Paul Shapiro, Humane Society of the United States, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Justice or Just Us. Thanks so much, Jared. It's my pleasure. I appreciate it. And uh, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. And we will be back in just a moment. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.